0: Zen and the Four Passing Sights. This is episode 92, <clears throat> and we're getting back into the Hobo Zen. Um, listeners might wonder why um, we and I, in particular, spend so much time talking about Buddhism and Buddha in a, uh, you know, non-religious podcast. Um, and I'll tell you, um, you know, as my philosophy. Changes as time passes, as I'm in different moods, um, you know, and I I go through all these different perspectives. I find that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, is perhaps the only person, and definitely one of the very very few who consistently makes sense to me, um, no matter how I'm viewing the world. Um, and so I keep going back to that. You know, it's kind of like the well I keep dipping back into. Um, all the things he explored, um, all the things he teaches, they make sense consistently to me. Um, even as I question other teachers, you know, I applaud this teacher. And you know, Buddha actually uh, talks about that. You know, praise and blame. You know, how we will condemn one teacher in one moment, and then the very same person um, will put him up on a pedestal the next. And um, I just find that that philosophy really works. Um, Part of what the Buddha teaches that I really applaud is the stillness and the quiet. I love that the overall kind of message that comes through is sit down and be quiet. Listen, find out for yourself so many people that we listen to on other podcasts, we read their books. Uh, you know, just wherever you're encountering people with messages, they're telling you things. They're they're sort of pushing an agenda. They're they're describing one reality. And I love how expansive the Buddha's philosophy is. That when he describes reality, and there's a invitation that's with it to find out for yourself. Sit down and be quiet and listen and see if this isn't true. If it isn't true, then you'd be a fool to follow it, and I really respect that. Um, And in that stillness, I find in the times that I can sit down and be still, be still in my mind, be still in my speech, be still in my body, those are the times that I tap into a level of reality where miracles become commonplace i mean miracles are the engine underneath everything everything becomes a miracle the fact that there's a sun over me is a miracle the fact that i'm drawing breath and trading it with these trees around me is a miracle in that stillness i find a depth that no philosophy encapsulates and the buddha even says that you know there's so many times in the the story of the buddha where people ask him questions and he doesn't give any answer uh, notably, one of the more more uh, well-known ones is when people ask him about God, the Buddha never spoke a word for or against God. He remained silent. You know, he he recognized that there there are things that you can't talk about because anything that comes out of your mouth is going to be misleading. Um, <clears throat> and to keep paying attention, that silence, the truth changes. If your philosophy is stuck in one place, you think, these guys are always bad, but these guys are always good, that doesn't really reflect reality. There have been times in my life, for instance, that the police were definitely the bad guys. And um, there have been other times that I would be fooled to ignore that the police were definitely the good guys. They showed up and helped us um, as one instance. This, when I'm still in quiet, really reflects the reality that... I know, um, and just paying attention to that changing reality, you know, that's something that comes up again and again, too, that I really love is not just sit down and be quiet, but pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. That just gets drilled in mindfulness, um, couple of times I think of, you know, and I think I mentioned this in our Hobo Zen podcast, and we talked about a lot of this stuff in that podcast, but we, there was so much that I feel like we just went over it so quickly that I wanted to break down parts of this a little bit more and explore them more because there's so much depth to this. Um, I believe I mentioned Shunryo Suzuki, and I know I'm probably butchering that name as I usually do everybody's name, but uh, he's got this quote where he says, the secret of Zen is just two words, not Always so, and at first that's kind of funny, but when you start really thinking about that, the depth of that statement, not always so, even within the statement, is the deep teaching. Just two words, and you know, of course, then he goes on to describe it in three words. Already saying this truth is already obsolete; it's incomplete the moment it comes out of my mouth. The secret is in is just two words. Bam! Already I'm misleading you hmm. because the very next three words, not always so contradict what I just said. It's a beautiful koan. It's a beautiful puzzle. It's a beautiful finger pointing to the moon, if you're familiar with that uh, metaphor in in Buddhism and Zen, Um, that your truth has to be dynamic. If you pay attention... Everything is changing. Everything is in flux. There's no static good and bad. There's no good guys and bad guys that are always the good guys and bad guys. There's no idea of who you are or what you're supposed to do that should be fixed. It needs to be changing. Um, an example of that, and this was probably one of the first Zen stories, maybe the first Zen story I encountered that helped me fall in love with this philosophy, was these two monks are taking a walk. And um, in their temple, there's a strict um, what would I say, rule, I guess, not to touch women. Um, it's considered, you know, if you touch a woman, then you are uh, might, might succumb to temptation, desire. It's like a whole avalanche that follows on that. And you're not putting all of your energy into waking up. So there's this rule in place in their temple and they encounter a woman that's standing next to a river and needs to cross the river and she's having trouble crossing the river. So, you know, the monks are told don't touch a woman. And yet one of the monks picks up the woman, walks her across the river, sets her back down. And they continue on down the road. And they continue in silence. And the other monk is troubled. And eventually he can't contain himself anymore. And he says, why did you pick up that woman? We're not supposed to touch women. You broke one of the rules of our temple. And the other monk turns to him and says, I picked up the woman and I put her down. You're still carrying her. And that message, you know, that dynamic, there's so much in that. That's that's one of the things I love that while I keep coming back to Zen is every time I come back, there's another layer. There's the first layer of carrying things aren't just with your hands, they're in your mind as well. How often we carry and so much baggage in our mind, how can we even perceive reality. We're blocked from it because we're carrying so much baggage. It's like being in a room and you can't even see the floor because there's so much crap. And then there's the other, um, another layer of truth to that of the dynamic reality. This monk, the wiser monk in the story, recognized that, okay, I see the truth. I I understand the rule of the temple. I follow it most of the time, but this was a different situation. So my truth had to be dynamic. It had to adjust Mm -hmm. with the changing reality that I'm in. Um, <clears throat> it gets hard sometimes, and I've been struggling with this quite a bit lately, is to do a podcast because, you know, I'm I'm encountering all these uh, these truths, and I'm realizing that the part that talks when I'm doing this podcast is mostly my ego. I get really worked up about something. I get really sure about something. I get really down on something. And um sometimes I catch myself and realize where that's coming from. It's this ego. It's the it's 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 the part of me that is the the most true enemy. We've talked about self-importance and uh you know Don Juan teaching that to Carlos Castaneda as if you're a person of knowledge um or you're trying to be a person of knowledge, that is your greatest obstacle is your own self-importance. Mm. And all you can do when you talk is tell a lie. Sometimes it can be a helpful lie. It can be a lie that through the lie guides you to find the truth, but the truth is not in the words, the finger pointing to the moon again. So sometimes I get a little, you might say, more aware than others. And it's hard to do a a podcast episode because I'm like, all I'm going to do is tell lies. I'm just going to lie and lie. I'm going to lie for about an hour. And uh, who's going to listen? The people that want to hear lies, that want to build up those lies, that um, are gonna take those lies and those lies help empower their lies. Mm. And uh, it's my ego Connecting with your ego through a stream of lies. And maybe you're going to say, Oh, wow, that's really good. And, you know, sometimes I get a comment where somebody like tries to bang the gong back, you know, like tells me something that's like, Oh, and this. And they try to give me some little pearl of truth. And I'm like, There's another lie. And why are they sharing this lie with me? Because I shared a lie with them. And, you know, I start wondering, What the hell are we doing? Um, But like I said, my hope is that through these lies, through just over and over trying to be as honest as I know how, whether it's through ugly things, through things that uh, you might say, wow, we're not supposed to say that, you know, that's a little too honest. And through questioning myself, through changing my philosophy as I go, I'm hoping that um, through this web of lies, somehow we help ourselves and maybe someone who's listening nudge a little closer to the truth. What are your thoughts on that, Teresa? Teresa's here, by the way.
1: (laughs) I was, uh, I was remembering a time when my parents and I were doing this uh, rappelling trip into a canyon, and I think I was the first one to go down the rope, and it was a, you know, this was kind of a beginner uh, outing with a, a group of people but it was still like a 70 something foot rappel down a rock face. So, and this was not, you know, this wasn't inside. This was a outdoor experience. And when I got down to the bottom, there was this kind of, uh, uh, outcrop of a rock and you had to be careful. Well, I somehow figured out how to get down to the ground safely. And then my mom came down and she also encountered this rock outcropping. And when my dad was coming down last on the rope, uh, my mom was, like, yelling up to him, like, hey, Mike, I just want to let you know that when you get down to the bottom, you know, there's this rock that you're going to have to, and I was like, shh, just let him have his experience. Nobody was shouting to you, and no one shouted to me, and <laughs> and my mom, uh, she kind of just gave me this look, like, how dare you shut me up? and then of course my dad came down and like knocked his helmeted head on the rock and you know my mom looked at me like see I told you something was going to happen but it was just reminding me of what you were saying of like experiencing the truth and not listening to someone else it's all about the living and the experiencing of it
0: yeah I'm glad you said that uh you know, like that is it, you know, we kinda we, we talk to each other and we wanna share what we perceive as the truth. And uh, indeed it is a truth. But there's a danger to that, you know, like you're describing your mom yelling up to your dad, you know, like she's sharing her truth, but the danger is that her truth ends up polluting his truth. Every time we uh, we're not careful with that, you know, we, we we risk polluting someone else's truth. Think about how many books you've read, how many podcasts you've listened to, what you've seen on TV, the movies, the music, uh, the the people you've talked to, the school that taught you. We have no idea what our pure, unadulterated truth might be, because it's so clouded with other people trying to share their truth. Um, that started affecting the way I taught, you know, when I was working with kids um, in the later parts of my teaching is like more and more I realized what I want to do is just kind of create a space for these kids where I get out of the way as much as possible. I minimize how much I I teach them and invite them to go find out for themselves. And indeed, often they find out things that I would not have taught, that I would have taught them not to. Um, And I learn. I learn more than I teach sometimes. And that's an incredibly humbling thing. And I also, you know, it makes me think of my dog too. Often people will try to, uh, you know, direct my dog. Uh, Teresa and I have gotten into a lot of discussions about this, because I've had my dog for 11 years and Teresa's kind of new to interacting with dogs in general and Sherlock in particular. Uh, I guess you've known him about three years now. Um, And I remember, you know, we we still, you know, like I'll be walking on a path and Sherlock will kind of explore another path and Teresa will be tempted to, um, you know, call Sherlock. And unless there's something like another dog up ahead or something that I feel like I need to, you know, pull in the reins, I'm constantly telling people, um, don't, don't control my dog. You know, let him explore this. Give him a chance to do wrong so he can learn to do right. And most people remark about what a well-behaved dog sherlock is how well he listens and that is so much because of that because i gave him a chance to choose to exercise his power of choice over and over and over to choose like oh i'm going to follow him i'm going to look to him for direction instead of me constantly begging and demanding and ordering listen to me listen to me listen to me you know do exactly what i say over and over by sparing it a little bit more i feel like sherlock has become a much more intelligent dog yeah i agree and I can see why people miss that. You know, it's kind of a subtle thing. I think I, I've, I've learned that who knows where I bumped into that, you know, who nudged me in that direction. But uh, a lot of contact with dogs has helped. Um, and, you know, just the way we mirror each other, you know, like what you hear is so often not what I intend and vice versa. You know, the whole universe, you start realizing more and more has this mirror-like quality. You're coloring everything. Um, and that's another thing that kind of gives you hesitation about the way you communicate, even trying to communicate, you know, what is happening with this communication? It's not what it seems. Um, I feel like the government, for instance, is very aware through propaganda that, How we fill in things, you know, to use certain words like Patriot Act, you know, they become more aware of this mirror-like aspect, and so we hear certain things, and they know how we're going to color it in, no matter what the underlying real thing is. Um, And just being aware of my own ignorance, how I'm, I don't know shit, like Teresa. This morning we were uh, we meditated. We sat by this river, and by the way, we're in Danville, Virginia, right now. We're heading up to the mountains, and uh, Danville has been quite a surprise. You want to tell our listeners about uh, our experience with Danville so far?
1: Well, upon arriving here, um, I think I just kind of immediately felt this uh, just balanced, like it was very balanced and very even keeled um, energy, and I know that sounds really woo-woo, but that's what I felt, and, uh, through, throughout the day yesterday, just observing and interacting with some people, it, it just kind of confirmed, of uh, this, this feeling, and, uh, right now the weather is gorgeous, um, it's, it's not hot at all, I'm sitting here in mid-May in my winter jacket, and, uh, it's, it's going to get warmer, but it's just—I mean, it's just a really nice town that uh, just seems to be in it together.
0: Yeah, some things we've noticed are—it feels a little bit more of a patriotic town, um, which as an anarchist, you know, I'm not crazy about that in itself. But we've noticed what that looks like if I let go again, you know, let go like, oh, fucking like, oh, God bless America and that bullshit. But what it actually seems to look like in this town is a more cared for town. People that are taking more pride or more aware of their town. So if that's the avenue they get there, you know, to, to, to look at the good and the bad, it doesn't make me want to be a pro-American anymore. But it also makes me not blind to like, wow, these people seem to, I don't know, there's a different energy here. And, you know, there's all this, uh, kind of viewing people like that that are patriots as like, oh, these are the racist Trump supporters. Man, I have seen more integration here than maybe any other place I've ever been in. Blacks hanging out with whites, blacks just being like, you know, of course I say blacks because we're white. So black people more like, hey, boy, that looks relaxing when I'm laying in my hammock. Just a more friendliness and camaraderie between, you know, the races of people here. Um, At a time when we're just being pumped through the media full of racism, uh, baked in racism, racist, critical race theory, you know, it just feels like you watch the TV and it's like, wow, racism is just blowing up everywhere. But you look around here and it doesn't reflect the reality we see. Um, I see people walking around without masks all over the place, not masks. But the people that are wearing masks are friendly. They're not being assholes about it. (laughs) You know, it's just, I don't know, there's a really nice vibe here. And coming from Durham, North Carolina, where things are so fucking polarized and amped up. And, you know, I was thinking the other day, like, man, these people that are like so... Uh venomous about their masks and hateful to the people that won't wear a mask. I'm like, well, no wonder you're more comfortable in masks. You've been wearing a mask your whole fucking life. Oh. There are some of us who've been trying to unmask ourselves our entire lives, and that mask does not feel natural. It's stifling. We can't breathe. Um, it just it doesn't feel right. We're so aware of what it's like not to see people's faces, and it's not healthy. So with that said, you know somebody wants to wear a mask, I can make space for that. But that's what I'm feeling here is more space. And again, we've been here like two days, you know. So <laughs> this is just a snapshot. It's We're an obsessed. overall impression. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we keep we keep having that impression um, reinforced the longer we stay here, and it's really beautiful. Um, and we are in the middle of the gas crisis of 2021, part one. Pew 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 pew. That's for you, Graham Elwood. <laughs> <clears throat> And yeah, so we're trying to take it easy and not move any further than we need to. But again, we're seeing, I don't know, maybe like you can't get the high octane gas right now, but there's no big lines at the gas pumps, you know, yet, but uh, I'm not trying to jinx things, but... Again, this hype, you know, then I get online and everybody's like, I'm seeing pictures of long lines, people fighting, people fucking putting gas in plastic bags, for God's sakes, oh God. just madness. Oh and it's God. so easy, especially if you're doing the, you know, lockdown, don't go out thing. And now you got to worry about you might have not have gas to go out to just let that feed your impression of what the world is, and it's not what's happening out here. It's not what's happening. It might be happening in a few places, but Jesus Christ, why focus on that one place when there's 99 other places where things are calm? People aren't losing their minds. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, again, this town just seems more even-keeled. Like, they still have the regular octane gas, and nobody, like Gumby said, there aren't long lines. It just seems like, I don't know, pretty normal as far yeah. as the... 2020 and 21 years are.
0: <laughs> and going back to, uh, you know, talking about medit- med- meditating beside the river this morning, you know, we were talking about that scene in the old uh, 1940-something... Uh, Christmas Carol with Alastair Sims, which is like the best telling of the Christmas Carol, Scrooge. And uh, right when he wakes up the next morning after the ghost visited him, he does this little jig, this little dance where he's singing, I don't know anything. I never did know anything. And I love that. I love that scene. God, I could watch that over and over. The liberation of him realizing his abysmal ignorance is so freeing. Yeah. And think about how much we are trapped in our beliefs. You know, you think you know what is good and what's bad, but what if you don't? What if you don't know anything? What if it's all infinitely mysterious and changing all around you? Everything's becoming something else. Um, God, that little jiggy does. You know, I've felt a taste of that before like, wow. It feels so good not to have the burdensome responsibility of thinking I know shit only to like have to protect it, to have to argue against it with people, to have to defend it, to have to be proven wrong over and over and to like try to find a way to force it to fit because I can't be wrong. It's got to fit.
1: You yeah, only to surround yourself with people who believe the same things, so you don't feel challenged.
0: Yeah. That. Now more than ever with our technology, these little bubbles, this Uh, identity politics and everything, just to have to not face our own ignorance, That, that feeling that we think would destroy us. But the thing that might get destroyed is our ego. And when that gets destroyed, man, you know, it might feel so good. It might be like a bird taking wing. You know, that bird doesn't have any philosophy, religion, politics. It's just here. It's beautiful. Now, you know, and that – I think about how – well, I wrote down knowledge as a dead-end road, but I guess that's pretty redundant. I think we've uh, talked about that and how ignorance is, uh, can be a gateway to knowing, you know, the difference between knowledge and knowing. Knowledge is something that – an ambition that we try to accumulate, and I feel like almost always leads us astray, if not always. Knowing is different from knowledge. Um, to my way of thinking. Knowing is what happens when you let it all go and you just are, because you are this universe. There's nothing to learn about the universe. You are the universe. You just know. I feel like we we get further and further away from that with all of our uh, talking and podcasts, for instance. So here we go. (laughs) So let's talk. Yeah, let's talk. (laughs) So Just to catch us up on the Buddha story, you know, where we wanted to focus on the four sites for this episode. Um, King Sudhudana, which is the Buddha's father, Siddhartha Gautama, he'd received a prophecy. Um, It said that seven of the prophets said, oh, he's going to be a great king. But one prophet said, I think he's going to be a teacher. So there were two paths laid out before him. One was to be a tremendous king, like a king that would be known like You know, I imagine like uh, Alexander the Great, somebody that would change history, that would form new countries, that would, you know, be a king of kings, or a teacher. And the teacher is somebody who might do crazy crap, who might have a really hard life, who might be sacrificed at the stake. The teacher has a very uncertain path, is often extremely unpopular in their life, is misunderstood. Um, Their teachings, even after they're dead and be. Are carried on and become famous, their teachings are misunderstood. Hmm. Um, So a teacher is a very, you might say, uncertain path. So King Suddhodana, not because he's an evil man, wanted to protect his son, wanted to give his son the secure future. And what a lesson that is, you know, how often we see that replayed throughout history. The parents who want to protect their kids, who want to give them that security, even though that security doesn't move us forward, might not actually help the world. Because thank God, you know, the philosophy that the Buddha took that path, because that's what lives on. And it's not just some footnote in a history book of an empire that conquered another kingdom. <clears throat> so he's living it up. He's the rich boy of rich boys. He's got he's got pussy everywhere. He's got like there's girls, you know, this is emphasized in the story. This isn't just me trying to uh make it vulgar. Um his concubines. It said he's had hundreds of concubines. He loved sex. Um, And not only does he just have all this like frivolous sex anytime he wants it, he's got the best foods that can be offered. People playing the finest music, the best musicians, the best entertainment, festivals. And then he finds his his one true love. I believe her name is uh, Princess Yasodera. I might be wrong about that. Um, But, you know, and she's okay with him. Like, having sex with whoever he wants to, but just, you know, we share this true, intimate, special love. So he's got everything. He's got everything the material world can offer. And out of curiosity, there's nothing that he's seeing. And by the way, is once again, his father is sheltering him from anything that could be bad, because if he sees something wrong with the materialistic world, he might be tempted to take that other path, which his father had been warned against. Like, he's kind of prone to it. He's either going to be a king or he's going to be like a hardcore uh, seeker, teacher, um, that spiritual path. So his father is trying to protect him from that uncertain, crazy path where he could get, you know, sacrificed at the stake, mm. put on the cross. Um, so he's not questioning anything yet. He's just curious. He's like, you know, I'm an intelligent person. I recognize there is a whole world happening outside of these palace walls. I want to know what's out there. And he keeps asking his father, I want to go out there. I just want to take a trip. Let me see, like, I want to see the town. I want to see what's over that mountain. Let me see what's out there. Finally, his father realizes he's not going to be able to stop him forever. So he sends out people in front of King or or Prince, um, there's a tractor going by. It distracted me. Prince Gotama Siddhartha to clear the streets. If there's anything ugly, anything that's like doesn't look like Pleasantville, sweep it aside. Get it, get it away so, so my son won't have to see it and start asking questions that I won't have answers for. So that's done, and uh, his, his friend and um, servant and charioteer, uh, Chana, takes him out in the town. Now, it turns out that the original Pali texts say this did not happen they say that this was more a realization that he developed, these four sites that he talked about, but this event isn't recorded in the original text. So we get sort of a a mix of, you might say, fact and fiction, myth and uh, history, and I don't think that's important. I've heard people get into debates about whether Jesus Christ really lived or not, and, you know, I'm like, what does it matter? The the thing that matters is, does this ideology serve you? Does it make you a better person? If you find out that Jesus never existed, but the ideology served you, you have truth. It doesn't matter where it came from. And if you find out that Jesus actually existed, everything in the Bible actually happened, but you're a crummy asshole and Christianity doesn't serve you, get rid of it. I'd say it's the same with with Buddha, with anybody. So, for our purposes for this story, we'll just treat the, the four sights as if they actually happened because whether they happened historically or whether the Buddha just later talked about them, it's recognized by the Buddha himself that these four sights were powerful. They were pivotal. They're what changed the course of his life. So he goes out. He's riding through town and in some stories it said that his karma because of all of his past lives unfolded it was unstoppable he was going to see these four sights no matter what happened And it's said in other stories that the gods intervene, that a Buddha, an awakened person, is more powerful than the gods because even the gods are trapped in their paradigms. They have too much pleasure. The people in hell have too much pain. They can't see through their pain. They're so busy suffering that they can't find truth. The gods are so so wrapped in their pleasure that they can't see truth because they're so indulgent. They're so uh, surrounded by beauty. The human has a unique opportunity. It's a balance between heaven and hell. So it's a special thing to be a human. It doesn't make you better than the other animals. It just means that this is a special opportunity. You're lucky to be a human. You might say if you were born a dog, you're lucky in different ways that we can't imagine because we are not dogs. Let's focus on being humans because I'm a human and I'm talking to other humans. That's where I feel like the Buddha is coming from with this. So the gods intervene. And they provide these sites to help the Buddha on his way. But however it happened, it happened. And the first sight that the Buddha encounters, the first passing sight, is an old person, aging. The Buddha had never seen an old person before. One of the things his father had sheltered him from is the fact that these golden, beautiful, athletic, handsome bodies are going to wither. So if someone starts getting old, that first white hair, they're ushered out of the kingdom he sees an old person. Think about what that must have looked like. The first old person, withered skin, drooped over, hunched over, missing teeth, missing hair. The hair that's left is scraggly and white. Um, skin that looks covered with liver spots. That looks like the bark of a tree. Uh, pain and movement, you know, moving so slowly and little twitches of pain like, oh, that hurts. And You know, the, I think about some of the things that aging teaches, the humility. Um, What are some, uh, I'm talking a whole lot to Teresa. Teresa says she was going to jump in here, but I'm going to have to drag her in. Teresa, what do you think about aging?
1: (laughs) No, it sucks. Um, (laughs) I mean, having just visited with my grandpa for the last time, um, it was even jarring for me to see how bad aging can, can get. And that's not to say that aging is a bad thing in and of itself, but just like Siddhartha, I, I've been thinking about these four sites and it seems kind of fanciful. It seems like, oh yeah, of course his father could shield him from this, but really I feel like I'm also shielded from it. And maybe all of us are shielded from it in, in some way maybe more, some more than others, but seeing, you know, someone, especially someone that I know who I remember, not as someone who's, you know, so young and spry and healthy, but someone who's been going for a long time downhill and just the smell of death in the house, um, the smell of, you know, like rotting flesh and bodily fluids and all sorts of unpleasantries, um, that go along with having a human body that is going to eventually succumb to death. Um, yeah, just... It is very jarring and uh, and disturbing and can um, can lead you to being sad in some instances, but also, like, there's a lot of things going on. Like, when I think about old age, um, in myself, you know, I, I kind of feel like, man, what can I do to like help get through this without suffering too much, even though I'm, I'm certain that there is going to be suffering. Um, but you can also look at it like, you know, eventually this is going to end and what a relief that would be, or that is.
0: Yeah, and I think about some of the gifts that aging offers, you know, like the humility. I mean, you you become incontinent. You can't move as fast. You, your mind isn't as sharp. You know, this fading, the slowing. Um, I feel like our focus is really encouraged to change, you know, to expand our sense of self, because since you can't do all the things that you used to do, it's more of an invitation to share, to tell stories, to do things for other people. Um And to help, you know, to have them do things for you, you you recognize this reciprocity. Um, In aging, I feel like it gets easier to develop wisdom, or pana, which is uh, said in Buddhism, a right view. You know, you've been around in this world for a while. You have something to share, and you've had an opportunity to see things in a more, um, you might say, correct light. You know, what they really are, instead of just being fooled by the flashy things of youth.
1: To see the, that things are not always
0: so. Mm-hmm. And all that experience, you know, they, they say the number one regret of people as they're getting older, you know, they, they've interviewed people on their deathbeds, people that are terminally ill, they're about to die soon. Um, what would you say your number one regret is? And the number one regret of people on their deathbeds is I wish I hadn't worked too much. I wish I'd stayed home with my family. I wish I'd done more of the things that I loved instead of working. Um, and man, that's always stayed with me. I've always remembered that it's always been towards the front of my mind, you know, that memory of like, wow, don't have that regret. And <laughs> that's one regret I don't think I'm going to have. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things about aging is, you know, it's interesting how we're often horrified, you know, this is the first of the four sites, but all these four sites are often repulsed and feel aversion. And we fail to see that this is us we are aging. We're going to get old. Um, we're going to feel, you know, we're subject to disease. We're going to die. And it's interesting how much all of these sites are kind of things that we, we avoid. We don't want to see them. And that in itself is a powerful doorway. Why don't we want to see them? What part of us uh, tries to avoid this? Because this is us. It's not just like, oh, I don't like horror movies you can get through your whole life and not see a horror movie. But to say, oh, you know, I, I feel an aversion. I don't want to be around like aging and death. This is you. This is every single of them. If you're hearing this, this is you. You have this in front of you. Um, later, it said in that some stories say it's the same day he sees all four sites I don't know. I like the other story where he goes out like four times. It just appeals more to the storyteller in me, I suppose. So, he goes back to the kingdom. He's seen an old person now. He's reflecting like, "Wow. I never thought about these bodies fading out. Like, here's my beautiful wife and I'm going to have to, you know, one of the things I love about her is her her ethereal beauty, the way she walks, but she's not going to walk like that all the time. She's going to be hunched over. Um, you know, she's going to smell of urine because she's going to become incontinent. Her her skin is going to droop and sag, and so is mine. Like, you know, like, I love the way she looks at me, you know, the, the attraction, the desire I see in her eyes. Um, and we're going to have to go through this, you know, and I'm everybody I know is going to have to go through this. Like, this is an illusion. All this beauty, all this sexual desire, I, all these women that I'm having sex with, they're fading out. Um there's there's a piece to the puzzle that has been missing my whole life. And so he's kind of jarred by this, but his curiosity is more piqued than ever. Like, wow, I want to see more of the world that just rocked my world. (laughs) So he asks Chana to take him out again and he goes into town. And the next thing he sees is a diseased person, a person with like pustules all over his body, coughing and sneezing. Uh, He's got the vid. He's just out there on the road, you know, and he's like, he's asked his, uh, his friend Chana, he says, what the hell is that? (laughs) And Chana's like, well, that's a disease person, my prince, uh, have you never heard of disease? Like, and Siddhartha's like, what the fuck is disease? And Chana's like, well... We are all subject to this. It could happen any time. Like in a person's life, sometimes you get an illness. You get sick. Sometimes what? it kills you. Sometimes like it visits the rich and the poor alike. Anybody could get a disease. And uh, Siddhartha asks, "There's no protection against this? And Janice says, not really. I mean, you're going to get sick sometimes. So he's dealing with this realization. Now he's realizing his body's going to fade. And even before it fades... You know, that that time he has is not guaranteed. It doesn't matter how rich and powerful you are. It doesn't matter how many people with swords you surround yourself by. It doesn't matter how many doctors, how many scientists are working on, you know, in their labs. Um, This sickness is a part of life, it's intrinsic to life. And how interesting it is that we have this advanced technology now, um, and we have just as much sickness as we, we ever did. You know, it's just changed people talk about, oh, but we cured polio. We uh, look at tuberculosis, look at smallpox. Um, And I would say, yeah, but look at cancer, look at uh, chronic depression, look at um, Jesus Christ, COVID-19. These are part of life. And one of the things that disease does is it exposes our innate powerlessness. We like to imagine if we could just figure out stuff, we'd have power over everything. You know, we imagine a world where disease has been eradicated. Mark Zuckerberg's wife uh, makes it her mission to eradicate disease.
1: All diseases.
0: All diseases. When I heard that, I thought it was absolute insanity. Disease is not our enemy. Disease is part of this world that we are part of striking a balance. The more that we create discord, the more disease we find. Anthropologists, when they study... uh, go back in time and they study dental records, for instance, they find people with, are, were keeping their teeth well into old age. Mm. There's so much, you know, we, we covered some of this, the diseases of civilization in our episode Patches. Um, but there is a long list of heart disease, uh, diabetes, um, just all kinds of things you don't find outside of our civilization. So for all this Supposed vaccinating and cures for diseases, we have a whole new set of diseases that are absent in in civilizations, in, in cultures that don't have these. <clears throat> and we have a choice. We can either fear these diseases or accept them. This is part of life, getting sick sometimes. And sometimes instead of like fearing the disease and trying to outsmart it and trying to fill our bodies with a more misunderstood sketchy shit. Maybe we should look to the disease as a teacher. What's this telling us? Where'd this disease come from? Smallpox and the Black Plague and all these things that decimated the population, you know, the the disease extraordinaires, the kings of the diseases, the ones that we still hear about to scare us that are in history. When we trace them back, They come from times when we kept animals in cages, when we kept animals confined and too close to us, when we removed animals from their natural environment, times when we made decisions that at the time seemed like small, practical decisions, but what they amounted to as they escalated is we're robbing things of their freedom. We're trying to control the world. Guess what? The human population population has been growing well before... um, Since it started, basically, well before the 10,000 years of our civilization, it was just growing very, very slowly. What this tells us is the human has been a successful animal. Going out hunting, foraging, it worked. There was nothing wrong with it. And the people that introduced these things, you know, this is one of the things that's making me uh, question all the things I think I know. You can't even look at them as bad guys. As I was uh, talking with Teresa at one time – jump in here, Teresa. I, want, I will. Is uh, – is, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. Is that, you know, like I think about if society collapses and somebody comes up with – for instance, I know that agriculture It's not just totalitarian agriculture on a large scale – Any kind of agriculture, the way you keep it going is to take nutrients from another place, compost, um, Native Americans used fish, you know, to add nutrients to the soil. Because if you're growing a garden, agriculture of any kind, you're robbing the soil of nutrients. You've got to replenish it from somewhere. And where do you get those nutrients? You have to steal it from somewhere else. Agriculture is a more destructive way of acquiring food than foraging or wild tending, for instance. Um, On a small scale, it doesn't really matter. When the population is small, you don't even really feel the hit. But it's the beginning of a step in the wrong direction. And if you're hungry, if society collapsed and somebody's got a little tweak, a little, little method that produces just a little bit more of your favorite food, who the hell is going to stick to their, their ethics and say, Nope, not me. (laughs) I'm just going to eat grubs over here. You know, you enjoy your tomatoes and hot peppers. So it's not that there's bad guys and good guys. It's an overall view that just kind of led us astray. I'm not sure why, what led us astray. We've had a lot of conversations about this, like what the hell made people start practicing agriculture? And I've heard all kinds of views and, uh, I don't think any of them really got to the heart of it. But these diseases, you know, they, they spin out from this wrong way of living. Um, I'm not saying the world was completely disease-free. Viruses and bacteria have been with us since the beginning. Viruses helped mold us. We we are the, the, the animals we are largely in part because of viruses. They've been no small engines in evolution, um, selection. And our bodies are composed in large part of bacteria, part of What you're speaking of when you say I, me, or, you know, in this uh, new pronoun dictionary, whatever damn pronoun you want to uh, apply to yourself. Prince self. Yeah. You're describing (laughs) partly bacteria. That's partly in that little circle you're calling you.
1: I was just going to (laughs) say, along with all of these sites, the old age and disease, and you're going to talk about death. Um, that if I think about disease, which just recently I had my bout of whatever I had. A fart. Yeah, right. Um,
0: The doctor actually said it was a fart, so that's not just me being mean.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't. Um, So yeah, it makes me really appreciate the days when I'm not feeling bad, when I'm not having a dis-ease, when I'm not sick, when I'm feeling well and I'm feeling healthy as healthy as I can be and the same with you know old age for that matter like I'm never gonna be younger than I am right now so I should rejoice in that we were talking this morning about how I just was feeling like crap because I'm getting older but honestly I should feel in this moment the joy of being so young and not having all of those things to worry about that that are coming
0: yeah, I had a friend on Facebook one time that was saying something. I, I can't remember. She was saying like how she felt ugly and she wished she looked the way she did 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I told her something that seemed like an offhand comment at the time. But every now and then something comes out of my mouth and I'm like, man, I don't know where that came from, but I nailed it. Mm. You know, <laughs> and a lot of the times it's accidental, but. I told her, well, imagine how you're going to feel 10 years from now, because 10 years from now, you're going to think, man, I wish I was like, you know, how I was 10 years ago. And that person 10 years ago is this person right now. (laughs) And that, maybe I read it somewhere, wherever I borrowed it from, um, is powerful, you know, like we're getting older. Like if you feel old, you're probably, it's, it's, you're focusing on the past. But equally, you could turn that upside down and use it as a very empowering thing. Right now, you're the oldest you've ever been, but you're also the youngest you're ever going to be.
1: Right. Yeah, I guess, I'll just say one more thing, just going back to that thought of, it seems ridiculous that you'd, you know, be Siddhartha, who is what, 29 or something at the time of this story. Yeah, he
0: actually was 29 when he uh, saw these visions and these visions are what prompted him to go forth from the kingdom.
1: And you never have seen someone who was sick or had a disease, but I mean, look at our culture. We are almost to the point when I say our culture, I'm, I'm speaking just like in generalizations. It's like, we are not allowing any diseases to exist like Mark Zuckerberg's wife, you know, whatever. Um, So it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like that big of a stretch to think about this story in terms of how we are right now in our culture. That's it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, sickness can be an opportunity, uh, you know, an invitation to stop, you know, to change, um, an interruption. There's this movie I love, one of my favorite movies called Ink, And uh, it's a really complicated storyline. I'm not going to use our time to go into depth here. But anyway, there's these spirits from the afterlife, you might say. I'm oversimplifying this. But they're trying to intervene in this man's path, who's become very selfish, who's uh, (coughs) kind of leaving his daughter to die, basically, and his daughter needs help. And um, (coughs) there's this one character, speaking of disease, that, uh, you know, he creates this situation. I think he's called the Pathfinder. And um, so it's hard for the spirits to intervene in a light a person who's alive's path. But he brings out this box <coughs> and he cranks on this little thing, and all it does is create one little breeze. And it blows a dollar out of this guy's hand. And somebody notices the dollar and bends over who trips a person behind them and flowers fall out that they were carrying, which makes, you know, this chain of events until eventually it leads to this person crashing their car right into the side of this guy's car. And uh, I'll never forget what the guy, the Pathfinder said. He's like, sometimes scars are good. Sometimes you got to shake the shit out of them. And... I love that. That's so true. That's what I think about with disease. Sometimes this thing interrupts your path. You're just going along. You feel like, oh, you know, you're not really exploring anything. You don't take, you're like Siddhartha. You're not really questioning anything. It's just, you know, walking through clueless and something takes you down. Suddenly you feel so small and fragile. Suddenly you're stopped. You were saving up that money for that vacation and now you can't even work. And now you got to worry about, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't go to work. You know, something interrupts you. This is a life-changing moment, or the opportunity is there for it to be. You're getting the shit shook out of you. Everything you thought just got turned upside down. That body that you were taking for granted yesterday, oh, I've experienced this myself. When I had my gallbladder taken out, I used to get horrible stomach aches. And one of the things that, like, made a big impression on me with these stomach aches is I'd be up all night rocking back and forth, pain, 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 I can't sleep, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, man, what, what will bring relief? And sometimes it would just suddenly go away. Looking back, I didn't know what it was, but looking back, I think maybe the gallstone had passed through. And suddenly the absence of pain was better than any drug. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. I just took it for granted. Before the pain was there, I didn't think I was feeling good. I might've been focused on like some kind of shit happening on the other side of the world, ruining my day. But because the pain, the dis-ease, visited me and then went away. For a moment, I was cleansed. I was baptized. I was—I had new eyes, just the absence of pain. I'm not focused on anything, but oh my God, I don't need anything else. This moment is perfect. I don't have that gallstone fucking with me. So these, these diseases, you know, instead of like clinics and trying to move heaven and earth and fucking pulling... Uh, cells out of unborn babies and slicing open sharks and putting jellyfish in a blender and, you know, fucking giving mice cancer and all this wicked, crazy shit we do to fight disease as if it's the ultimate enemy. Is there no recognition of the times that have visited all of us when disease, whether you took the opportunity or not, was a cr- incredible teacher?
1: Yeah, I was just reading in the in this book we have... That's a a collection of questions that Osho was answering, and the name of the book is Fear, Understanding and Accepting the Insecurities of Life. And he basically says the same thing, like pain is a part of life. There's psychological pain, which you can deal with, but physical pain is there, and you can use it to bring yourself back into the moment, like you said.
0: Mm -hmm. And even fevers, you know, I've had times when I had a bad fever, and I, I... I slipped sideways into another reality. I couldn't distinguish dream from reality. And uh, these visions, you know, it was like taking a hallucinogen. It made me question what reality was. There's power there in this <coughs> this disease. And, uh, you know, they may be trying to lead us back to something, these diseases that we think are our enemy. But going back to the Buddha, you know, he saw that and he's now he's rocked. He realizes all this control and power that he's been taught that he has, you know, before, before that vision, That sight, it was like, you know, I want goat (laughs) made in my favorite way. Bring it to me. Everything was at his whim. I want a different, I I love diversity, so I want a different woman for every day of the week. He's got it. Snap it of his fingers. He's Prince Siddhartha. He's got everything he wants. For the first time, he realizes, holy shit, I am not in control. He feels the insecurity, which is one of the powerful essence of disease. I'll try to drink some water, but yeah, you got anything to,
1: I don't have much else to say about that, but we'll give pause,
0: man. That's music to my ears. Yeah. The whole rest of the day, she's going to have stuff to say about everything, right? Fuck you. (laughs) I think they heard that. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you is our little way of saying I love you. Um, so Siddhartha gets back to the kingdom and he's reeling from these two sights. you know, like he's seen the first old person, he's seen a diseased person, he's his whole view of reality is turned upside down, so and he's he wants to see more. He doesn't know what's happening, but he's hungry for it. There's a whole world out there that he hasn't even fathomed. So he goes out on the third day and he sees the third sight. He sees a dead body. The vultures are there pulling this body apart. Um the bile's spilling out of it. It smells horrible. Maggots are writhing in the flesh. Um, it's just taken apart. It doesn't look like a living thing anymore. It's completely, it's like a machine that's been turned inside out. Um, he, he doesn't even recognize it as human at first. And he, he asks Channa, What the fuck is this? <laughs> and Channa's like, Well, Prince Siddhartha, that, that's a dead body. Did you not know? And Prince Siddhartha says, Know what? And Shanna says, we all die, the rich, the poor, men, women, people all over, every creature, the horses, the goats, everything, everything has its turn and then dies. Siddhartha had never considered before, Jesus Christ, you mean this doesn't last forever? And he goes home and he thinks about that and how interesting death is. Um... I think about the way our bodies rot, you know, and this also applies to aging somewhat. But one of the the things I thought about when I thought about what's the teaching of death is it reminds us that we are and always have been made of the world. I think that's one of the disturbing things about seeing a dead body is it doesn't look human anymore. Suddenly, it looks like something out on the landscape. It looks like Wetness, it looks like meat, it looks like food for vultures and worms, it looks like all the things that we didn't think we were. Hmm. It reminds us that those bones and everything are actually made of this world. They're not just some special thing that got dropped down from a spaceship from a realm in heaven. They're made of this world. And it reminds us that the world is made of us. This whole world, this ground we're walking on, is full of our ancestors, our dead bodies. They've gone back. They fed the vultures who then died and added nutrients to the soil. The water that dripped out through the bile of these, these rotting corpses, you know, that water got cleansed and through the water cycle added to the rivers. The world is made of us, and we are made of the world. And there's a beauty to that, but if we're not ready for that truth, and you might think you're ready for that truth, you might want to read it in a little poem, and it sounds really pretty. But to really look at a dead body, that's sobering. That's a disturbing truth. It's not the way most of us really want to think of ourselves. <clears throat> you know, in our, our egos, we fear these aspects of life. And it is our ego. That's the part that, that that fears this. And we are taught to fear these things. We're not in a culture, especially our culture, I mean, any culture, I feel like, struggles with these things. These are gateways that you have to kind of wrap your mind around. They're big deals. That's part of the human experience. Our culture in particular, I feel like, has really inflated the fear of these. Why? Where do we learn this fear from? Well, our parents partly teach it to us. Our churches teach it to us. Our schools teach it to us. But where do they get it from? The people that control us. One thing I've learned about propaganda and government is the best way to control people is through fear. Mm -hmm. And what are we talking about with these four sites, the three sites we've mentioned so far? These are the things we fear the most. We fear death, we fear getting old, and we fear disease. And can't we see it right now in the pandemic how that fear can be so easily exploited to lead people to do pretty much anything you want them to do if you can tap that vein of fear? Mm. But there is another way of looking at these things. We don't have to fear these things.
1: Here, you want a break? Yes, please. All right. This is from that book I mentioned, uh, the book from Osho. He says, everything returns to its original source, has to return to its original source. If you understand life, then you understand death also. Life is a forgetfulness of the original source. And death, death is again a remembrance. Life is going away from the original source. But death is coming back home. Death is not ugly. Death is beautiful. But death is beautiful only for those who have lived their life unhindered, uninhibited, unsuppressed. Death is beautiful only for those who have lived their life beautifully, who have not been afraid to live, who have been courageous enough to live, who loved, who danced, who celebrated. Death becomes the ultimate celebration if your life is a celebration.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, and... uh you know, in line with that, you know, looking for the lessons of death. I think of, uh, I've mentioned broken glass zen. I believe I mentioned that in Hobo's Zen. Um, But broken glass zen is basically that you realize the fate of every glass is to break eventually. Every glass in the world that you've ever encountered, one day it's going to break. There's no no such thing as an eternal anything, including a, a glass. So broken glass zen is a reminder that this is true of all things. Your car will one day break down. Your body will one day stop. Your heart is one day going to stop, guaranteed. Your kid's heart is one day going to stop. Your parent's heart is one day going to stop, absolutely 100%. How many things in life that we hear through politics, whatever, are 100% absolutely undebatable true? It's kind of exciting to look At things that are absolutely true and a little scary. So broken glass N reminds you, if that's true, then you just got another day above ground. You're complaining about your bad back. You got a backache. You just had another day above ground. Uh, You're worried about gas prices, the gas running out. Are you dead? You just had another day above ground. You're not dead yet. It's a good day. You know I've heard this like that broken glass zen. I've heard it said colloquially, you know, and I'm kind of using that colloquial term is, yeah, another day above ground. You know, that's some of that old-fashioned wisdom right there. That's broken glass zen. That's somebody recognizing like another day above ground is a good day. I ain't dead yet. That is something that's so offhand that it can just sound like haha, you know, that's a cute little yeah. But it's deep. It's really deep. That's a profound way to live, to remind yourself that person you're hanging out with, you know, Teresa and I bicker all the time. Hell, we bicker on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, we're not going to be around each other forever. Our paths might lead to a different place. One of us might die. One of us is going to die. And whether we're around each other or not, who knows? Sherlock, you know, he's going to die one day, etc., cetera, et cetera. The van. What a beautifully fortunate day this is so far. That Teresa and I still are sharing the space, our friendship, our relationship. That Sherlock is still with us, even though he left a little shit kiss from his asshole on the blanket this morning. and I was not happy about that. <laughs> the van is still running. You know, I get anxiety sometimes. Like, what if the van breaks down in a place I'm not, you know, cool being? But right now, I got every reason to believe because it was running fine this morning. It's going to crank up again. You know, what a good day this is. And it's like that, that gallbladder thing again. Just when the pain subsides, suddenly I realized what I took for granted is perfect. <laughs> it's beautiful. This is part of the power of death. Death is a powerful lesson. And King Sudhudana in sheltering Siddhartha from the, the frightening, ugly, scary parts of death, he also denied him this powerful teacher, the specialness of life. Mm-hmm. Siddhartha, even though it was enjoyable and he was enjoying his life, he was also, I would imagine, taking it for granted. Oh, there's always dancing women. There's always the finest food. And not being being denied anything, he was also denied the profound specialness, the miracle of things, because that kind of appreciation is not all about the, you know, you first hear about the four sights, at least, you know, this is the way I heard them. Whoa, aging, disease, death. These are ugly things. He got scared away from the kingdom. It's not just that. It's that death, aging, and disease are all incredible teachers. Mm -hmm. He didn't know how miraculous his life was. It was like he was playing a video game. It's like he was on autopilot. He had never asked profound questions. He didn't just run from the kingdom through fear. He ran from the kingdom because he wanted something that mattered. He was running towards something. And... It's interesting also when I think about death, how even now, 2,500 years later, death is still the biggest mystery mystery of life. Still, you can ask anybody, what do you think happens to you when you die? And they don't look at you like you're an idiot because nobody knows. It's a valid question. We all know that's a good fucking question. What do you think happens to you when you die? You can ask that to anybody, any crowd. They'll have an answer and they're not just going to look at you like, well, that's stupid. You know, they understand. I don't know, but here's what I think. Mm -hmm. It's still this profound mystery that's with us. And think about that. This is a thing, again, that happens to every single thing we see, every tree, every blade of grass. It stops, and we have no idea what this is. We have no idea. This stopping, this, this, this absence of this thing, we still don't know. How can we take pride in our knowledge? All this we built up, we can put satellites in space, we're going to, ooh, colonize Mars. We don't even know what life is because we don't know what happens at the end of it. Mm. Profound ignorance. Might it not be wiser instead of basking in our shallow superficial knowledge in the kingdom to turn around and to bask in our ignorance, to start looking at how much we don't know? That's the fertile ground. That's what Buddha was being driven through his curiosity. I want to know what's over that wall. I want to look at my ignorance. <clears throat> Underneath the, the myths and the delusions that we can cock to avoid facing it, I wonder if perhaps there's a remembering, a knowing that we are more, that death is not simply an end. You know, and what I mean by that, isn't it, Isn't it interesting that we still are all, not all of us, but some of us so convinced that there is something on the underside, other side of death, of life. I wonder if there's a part of us that knows we're bigger than what we've been taught. We can't even wrap our minds around what we mean by that. But there's a part of us that knows something continues. This birth and this death is not the whole story. I wonder if that's what drives, even in this culture of science, of things being so pragmatic, that so many of those people, even scientists sometimes, believe in some kind of afterlife, want to study the afterlife. Even though there's no real, you know, it'd be so easy to dismiss it and just for all of us to agree, yeah, you die. That's it. That's the end of the story. I wonder how much of that is avoidance, and I wonder how much of that is a remembrance you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, when my dad died, um, I was just noticing the, the term or terminology when people say, like, passed away or someone passed or passed on. Um, and just thinking about passing on or away or into what? Like, I don't know. It's just weird that word or that terminology just it kind of seems like an echo of something that we remember but we don't quite fully understand like so many words that we use or so many phrases that we use
0: yeah i've always found it like like i said if we're being completely pragmatic completely scientific you know you might be tempted to say well death is just the end your heart stops beating there's nothing afterwards but that's not very scientific. Even if I just try to be scientific, no hoogly moogly, no, no you know, mythology, no reincarnation, no heaven, no God, no, none of that, none of the stuff that could be questioned. I'm just looking with my own empirical evidence and, and eyes. Something continues. All those elements of your body, the air comes out of your lungs, goes into the trees. The Like, like I talked about, the moisture goes back into the water cycle. You continue, even from a scientific viewpoint. So I think these people that are just very finalistic, fatalistic about death is the end, I don't think that's very scientific either. I think that is an act of faith, uh, nihilistic faith, you might say.
1: We were just talking to someone about, uh, it was actually a, a conversation about drugs, and they mentioned that some people are there's, you know, scientists that have isolated the chemical, like the hormone that's released when, when you die. And some people are actually taking that. Oh,
0: adrenochrome. I think it's what it's called. Something. It was, it was featured in, a uh, um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. He talks about that. He used it as a drug.
1: And I was just thinking, I mean, if you just die and that's it, like it's kind of an interesting end, like, What's the purpose of that? That's kind of a, that's kind of neat and cool. Like when uh, women have babies, there is also a hormone that's released or a chemical that's released, and it's said to be like one of the biggest orgasms of your life. The others being at birth and at death. I I don't know. I just I find that to be really interesting. Like if that's it, the, what's the point of that? hormone. It's, it's almost like getting you ready, like easing you into the next phase of existence.
0: Wow. You know, I never thought about that, you know, thinking evolutionarily, what the hell would be the benefit of a chemical that's released that makes death more pleasant? How does that help the species? That is, that's a really interesting question. I'd like to, uh, we should research that and see. I mean, it seems like somebody would have asked that and has some kind of theory on that.
1: And I mean, sometimes those questions are just nice to just leave as questions, but... Hmm, true that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it, I was just thinking about that for the past couple of days since we heard it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a damn good question. <laughs> let, me, let me go back to my notes. Oh, and building on like when you were reading that thing from Osho... Um, It reminded me of what Don Juan says about death. Um, And I, I get this wrong, but it's something to the effect of death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel as if everything is going wrong and your whole life is falling apart, as you often do, turn to your death and ask if this is so. Death will say, no, I haven't touched you yet. Nothing is important outside of my touch. And that's another way, like I love how he's explaining Death is not the enemy. Death is actually your best friend. Death is what makes life make sense. Yeah, yes. Uh, you know, that when I was... I still have social anxiety, but when it was really crippling, some of the ways I'd get through my day, some of the only things that would help me, um, was one of the things was reflecting on that. And I thought about, you know, what if... What if I don't worry about like death just annihilating me? You know, what if I uh, accept death as a as a guide and use that as a guide? What does that guide me to? And one of the things that guided me to that's also something uh, Don Juan taught in the the Carlos Castaneda books is the last battle. What if this is my last mark on earth? What if death is going to tap my shoulder at any minute? Do I want to die as a coward? Do I want to die hiding from the world? Or do I want to die trying to the best of my understanding at that moment, doing what I feel like I should do? And uh, that got me out of the house. That got me doing things that otherwise I felt like I couldn't do. And that uh, that was my experience, I think, most with death really being an advisor, really guiding me when nothing else would, that death helped me. Um, But yeah, death is is such a profound teacher to know. So, you know, the Buddha, he's now seen a dead body. He returns to the kingdom and holy shit,
1: Hmm.
0: aging. He realizes this body is fading away and at any time it could be attacked by invisible forces, you know, diseases that's part of being alive. It's part of the cost. It's part of the risk we run. Like life is not a secure place. And death, like one thing that is certain is that it's going to stop and it is not pretty. Um, You know, it, it, to to see a rotting body and to recognize that all this is going to fall away. Your meat's going to fall off your bones. Your bones are going to crumble to dust. The vultures, the worms are going to pick the meat off your bones. It's going to smell horrible. Um, That's you. That's you. That's what's wrapped in all this pretty skin. He looks around at all these beautiful women, and that's what's wrapped around in their skin too. Just guts and slime and the things that only a vulture would eat. It's in there. It's in there right now and his world is rocked. Everything he'd been taught, he's now questioning. What the hell am I building like in this palace for? What does it all mean? It's going to go away. There's no security here. There's no security here. When I get to the end, what have I learned? What have I done with my life? I've just been sheltered, and that shelter doesn't last. It goes away. So he's asking some profound questions, and I can only imagine him just dizzy with these questions. But that curiosity is still there. He wants to explore his ignorance. He wants to see what's on the other side of that wall. And so, one last time, he asks Chana, Take me outside of the, these walls. And I can just see Chana rolling his eyes like, Oh, Jesus Christ, what's going to happen this time? So, he takes Siddhartha on a ride into town. And on this fourth day, he sees the fourth of the pa- passing sights. He sees a renunciant. At the time of the Buddha's life, um, there was this movement called the Sramana movement, and it was a going forth. It was people that were recognizing some of these very same things. It wasn't just the Buddha that had experiences with these four sites. People were all looking at these sites, and some people would go forth and become seekers. They wanted to see what was underneath it. What's the thing that lasts? What's the thing that matters? If we all die, what does it matter? These, these power struggles, these ambitions, this disease—that's the cost of our ambition. When you look at the diseases and trace them back, almost always you find human ambition behind them. Uh, the ambition to confine animals so you can have more food. Um, the ambition to sell sugary foods that are addictive so people eat more, and then it ruins their teeth and uh, poor dentation, as we've, you know, been taught, causes many other illnesses. <clears throat> What's the truth? What's the thing that matters? So people would go forth and renounce, would get, would just turn their back on all these things that didn't matter to find the thing that did. So the Buddha saw this person that everybody else is just blind, asleep, doing their thing, selling their their stuff, other people buying their stuff, other people working at their chores, you know, and here's this person that's walking around with a smile on their face. That's not moving so fast. That just sits down and does nothing. How can he do nothing? Everybody's doing something. He's doing nothing. What is this person? And he points to that person and asks Channa. And Channa says, well, that is a renunciant. He's a seeker. He's uh, looking for the truth. He's looking for the meaning of life. He's gone forth and, you know, he's not hes not trying to accumulate wealth. Um and the Buddha, for the first time in his whole life, realizes <clears throat> that he has a choice, that there's another path. You know, he's already seen the emptiness of the palace, of the, the life he's leading, the, the facade, how it's all just a puppet show. And now he realizes that there is a way to go forth, to, to pursue something else, to find out what it is, to seek that freedom These are all existential opportunities to wake up. And we still, even now, 2,500 years later, we still experience these, these sites, especially the first three, as life-changing events. Think about how many people talk about a near-death experience. Their whole life was changed. Uh, they died on the operating table. Maybe they saw a light. Maybe they had a realization. They came back. Their life has changed. They had a severe illness, And maybe it left them in a wheelchair. Maybe it left them crippled. But it changed their life. It was an opportunity to see the world completely differently. What they do with it is up to them. Aging. How many people talk about the folly of their youth? Man, when I was young and crazy, I was naive. I did all the stupid crap. But now age came and slowed me down. Now, like I was so worried about all the, you know, all the boys thinking I was pretty. And now I'm an old woman with white hair. I'm not worried about that anymore. I can't worry about that anymore. Now I have to like focus on things that are more important. Um, it's a beautiful thing. These, these are all doorways, gateways, opportunities, these four sites. And as we said, it's a mistake to see them as enemies. Um, one of the things about going forth, this renunciant, this Ramana movement, is letting go. A big part of that is letting go, Um, releasing things, letting go of the things that don't matter. A palace or wealth or the big house or the fancy car or any of these things, uh, the brand new laptop, it doesn't come to you easily. You have to devote energy to it. You have to work for it. Um, I was reflecting this morning, we were at a rest stop that we slept at last night and I was talking to Teresa about my iPad. I was like, you know, this iPad seemed like such a small thing. But now look at what it what it's led to. Now we've got three chargers in case the iPad runs out of juice and I can't charge it. And, uh, you know, we, we spend so much time trying to keep a hotspot Wi-Fi from the library, you know. So we're constantly have access to Wi-Fi, which we too often utilize. We don't have it out here because we're not near the library. It was a... a Network. It wasn't just the iPad. It led to other things that took energy of some sort. Time and energy. It took my life force. Um, even right now, this podcast, I wouldn't be doing a podcast unless I just stumbled onto an iPad. I wonder what else I could be doing with this, you know, time. Um, so one of the reasons we take breaks between seasons is to remind ourselves what we'd be doing if we're not, you know, getting ready for a podcast episode. Sometimes it's listening to other people's podcasts, but the world is our oyster. It could be anything. Um, the Chitaka Tales, which are the tales of Buddha's previous incarnations, um, are all about letting go. Every single tale is about letting go. Him recognizing like, oh, there's a bigger sense of self, I'll give my life to feed this hungry beggar, Born when he was born a rabbit, uh, when he was born a hawk, you know, a similar story of sacrifice. Over and over, sacrifice, letting go, letting go. This. I can't hold on to this. This was never mine, so I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to waste my energy protecting something that can't be protected. It's going away. Why would I try to hold on to something that's going away? Because here's an an opportunity of doing the right thing by letting go, letting go, letting go. And I love reminding myself of that, that aspect of the renunciant path, letting go, letting go of the shit. And it's not just stuff either. Letting go of what you think you know. You like to be that clever person that when somebody says something like uh, very zen that you have that other thing to say, you know, like, oh, well, so-and-so said this. What if you let go of being clever? What if you let go of being anything? What if you just let go? What happens? What happens when you let go? There's this great book uh, Richard Bach wrote called Illusions, um, something about a reluctant messiah. And it's been a while since I read that book, but I remember one of the things he talked about is he's talking about these little clams, river clams or mussels at the bottom of the current and how their life is stressful. They're holding on to this rock. They're struggling, struggling. And, um, you know, how? what if enlightenment, what if reaching that other level is just letting go, letting go? They go down the river and they're free. Another book by Richard Bach with the same message, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. You know, he he so much focuses, his focal point, the seagull, is on speed, on the joy of flight. And he lets go of everything he's being taught, of his own mortality, his own life, and just focuses on that thing, that, that love. It could be his breath, but for Jonathan Livingston's seagull, it's flight. And he dies over and over. He dies and dies and dies and keeps getting freer and freer and freer until he's moving at the speed of thought. It's not even about flight anymore. He just goes wherever he wants to through thought letting go. <clears throat> There's this other great uh, Zen story that I encountered that was uh, talking about a, a monk who was about to achieve enlightenment. He was on his deathbed and he was passing away and this was his final birth. He had was not attached to anything anymore. And as he's going, the final nirvana, the final now he's going to be everything. He's not trapped in the one body that is useful But also comes with so much suffering because that's not what we really are. What we really are is everything. And he's about to embody that, total liberation. But as he's passing away, he has this one fleeting memory of how beautiful this deer was he saw one day in a glen. And he falls back and is reborn as a deer.
1: (laughs) Oh, no.
0: And I love that story because it's so innocuous. It's not like an attachment, a greedy thing. It's just the merest little feather tickle of an attachment of like, what a beautiful memory that was. And even that was too much attachment to be absolutely free. Wow. Can you imagine being that unattached to see the beautiful deer in the meadow and never to have that memory cross your mind again because that memory, it seems so innocent, but isn't it at the expense of whatever's now happening? That is one of those Like so many Zen stories That's just so simple And so deep So beautiful Teresa and I both happen to be reading Osho books right now I'm reading a different one It's something about uh, The Sufis The Sufis, yeah And I happen to As I'm getting ready for this podcast Read a part where he's kind of questioning um, Renunciation He's critical of renunciation And um, I like his what he says about why he's critical. Um, He says, what do we mean by renunciation? Aren't we separating the external from the internal? Um, To renounce something is to renounce a part of ourselves because it's all us. And I felt that sometimes when I'm sitting meditating, you know, like Things will happen outside of my body that are distractions. Something will pass through my mind that's a distraction, and I'll notice how it feels exactly the same. I'll feel that thinning of the veil between the internal and the external, and I see what he's getting at, you know, that renunciation. You got to be careful what you mean by that, because if it's all outside things like um, money, if we live in this world that is so ruled by capitalism, part of what we are is money. It's happening. It's part of our world. What do we mean by renunciation? And I don't say that as a I have an answer to it. It's just a really interesting thought, something to consider, because if we are at really after our true selves, you know, all the totalita- totality of what we are, we got to be careful of what we mean by turning away from something. Because when we turn away from something, we're not facing something, and that is not the path to, to truth.
1: I just happened to have my little notebook from years and years ago when I went to a talk, which, you know, we were talking in the beginning about um, being aware that, you know, just listening to other people's messages and parroting back the information, not experiencing and living and learning for yourself is, well, is what it is. (laughs) But this just, um, when you were talking, this is right in front of me. So the woman who was giving the talk, she was, um, this was a talk about depression. And so she was talking about um, depression being a buildup of aversion. Um, And that stress and depression is a buildup of yearning and not getting. So this buildup of aversion, instead of resisting the aversion, we should greet that aversion. And not turn away from it. So you were just talking about like turning away and renunciation. So I just thought I'd throw that in there I and mean, ask, you know, if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Oh, I jogged my memory. I'm I'm losing it. Uh, yeah. Well, I just posted something on Facebook that was a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh that kind of reminded me of that where he's saying we need to take... All aspects of ourselves, you know, the irritation and the reflection, the calmness and the annoyance and accept them all with love because they're all parts of ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, like when he plants a mustard plant, um, it's just as important as when he eats a tangerine, when he does anything, when he washes his hands or washes a dish, it's like washing the baby Buddha or the baby Jesus, Mm -hmm. you know. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing that OSHA is getting at. And what you just said is to accept it all. I feel like, you know, when I take that all into account, my thought now and again, you know, even my views, I recognize change as they should. So this might not be my thought later. But what renunciation then becomes to me is... A redirection of energy. It's not that I'm trying to turn away from something. It's that I'm not trying to pursue things that don't matter. In other words, it's not an aversion to money like, for instance, we've talked about this, actually. Should we accept money when people offer us money? We're backpacking. We just got back from a four-night backpacking trip. And as usual, without asking, people offer us money. We made a total of $70. Mm-hmm. And so we have some discussions about that. Like, should we be freegan? Should we absolutely turn away from money? And, um, you know, I feel like this is kind of addresses that, that that would be an aversion to money. That money is part of us. Now, should we seek to hoard money? That's the problem. I think that's what we're renouncing is a false path. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like a buildup, like she
1: was saying in her her, her talk, a buildup of aversion. So it's not so much that we don't, in, in this example, that we don't accept the money. It's just that if we were to change our whole way of looking at it and hoard it, it becomes more and more of a problem. Just like the buildup of aversions becomes depression and leads to stress
0: and mm-hmm. other things. Yeah. And there's, oh, another thing you're talking about aversion a lot. Um, you know, Teresa and I have been talking, one of the things that we often discuss is being out here, not, not working and everything. What do we do with our time and um, the responsibility of you know, I feel like, in a way, we're kind of renunciants, even though that seems kind of highfalutin for what we're doing. Um, but we are trying to renounce things that didn't matter to us. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, just, well, sometimes it is. Like, I hate work, you know, an aversion to work. Um, but it's more like, we have these short lives. Do I want to continue putting my energy in something that doesn't matter to me? Which I feel like is more the heart of a renunciant, Um But that leaves us with our minds, you know, which is if you've never stopped working and made enough space to deal with your mind, you might think if you could just get out of that, then that's the prison. That's only one floor of the prison. Mm. Um, Then you move into another floor of the prison and uh, dealing with free time, spaciousness, your mind is challenging. And we get into anxiety. We get into depression. And, um, you know, I've been exploring the idea with Teresa that anxiety is all future based. We don't know what the future holds. So anxiety all takes place in the future. What's going to happen next? Depression takes place in the past. Something happened in the past that we're, we haven't digested, that we're holding on to, and it makes us depressed. But the reality is only the present, this moment, and the vast bulk of your life, you know, when you reflect on that, if you really take stock completely. Set aside for a moment the future, what you think might happen, or the past, what has happened. Things are pretty damn good. The sun's shining, or the clouds came and protected you from the sun. You, you're not starving to death. You're not in dire straits. You know, like, these are unusual circumstances. The vast bulk of your life, you're just fine. And um, one of the things I just read in the Osho book that I hadn't really thought, spent a lot of time thinking of is he says, likewise, desire is takes place in the future. We want something. We want something. We work towards it. We fantasize about it. Oh man, how awesome it's going to be. But as soon as we get it, there's an emptiness to it.
1: Mm.
0: Desire by its nature is in the future. And I think about the things I desire. And that was interesting to kind of explore that. Like, oh, it's, it's it's not exactly unreal, but it's not what I think it is. And yeah, I know, this, kind of, this is a long podcast. <clears throat> but yeah, those are some reflections I had on what you said. Is there anything else you want to add to that?
1: No, I just, yeah, I just thought that was interesting that you were just talking about it at that moment, and I happened to have the page open.
0: Osho also talks about Zorba the Buddha. If you've ever seen the movie Zorba the Greek, and I kept hearing about it and finally had to watch it, but basically Zorba the Greek is somebody who is completely in the materialistic world, not in the sense of... Uh, wanting to be rich, wanting to be a CEO, but just in you know, the zest of life. Like, you know, he dances, he parties hard, he drinks hard. Everything he does is like life in capital letters. He's just living his life. And the Buddha is a more somber energy, somebody who has renounced things. You know, the Buddha isn't known for dancing and and, you know, joyous sex with a lot of women, at least after he got enlightened, and hard drinking and you know, he's in a way kind of the opposite of Zorba. And so Osho says that I believe the goal should be to be Zorba the Buddha, to balance (laughs) the two, um, to be mindful, but to celebrate life, not to turn away. It's not about giving anything up. It's about celebrating it, but not at the expense of just getting lost in it. To also have that contemplation, that mindfulness, to know what you're doing. Um, and I thought that's a powerful aspect of the renunciant too, you know, not just to, to turn away, to be some somber person who's thou shalt not rule your life, but to use this world, this world that is a part of you, that you are. It's not just a part of you. It is the entirety of you. You are of this world. You are this world made manifest. To celebrate that, to relish life, and that that also is a path of renunciation. I just think it's a really good image.
1: Hobo Zen.
0: Hobo Zen. Um,
1: the hobo knows how to be without and how to be with.
0: And how to be within. And how to be within. Hobo Zen! <laughs> um, and I feel like the most powerful part of this lesson of Siddhartha Gotama, that fourth sight when he sees the renunciant, I feel like, and of course, this is my interpretation. Like I said, everything I just said is a fucking lie. Everything comes out of my mouth is a lie. So remember that. So I'm about to tell you another one. Um, I feel like the main lesson he got from that renunciant is choice, the power of choice. Choice is what topples empires. Choice drives everything. Choice is what, when people decide they don't want to be enslaved and ruled by tyrants anymore, they choose not to. They choose to risk their lives. They choose to stand up. They choose to stop it. Choice is one of the most powerful weapons, powerful tools at our disposal as humans. You might say, and this is debatable, people say that that's something unique to humans. Not that animals don't have choice, but that we have it in abundance. We have it cultivated. We have a unique way of using this power of choice. I can see that. I can see that we, you know, just the way we live, however we got in this situation, um, our use, our, our relationship with choice is really unique. It seems to be. So... One of the things that is interesting to me is in this time since Edward Bernays, since World War II, since propaganda, public relations, um, this power has been somewhat co-opted from us. That's something that I feel like is different from the Buddhist time, that we're moving into a a strange new thing, and I don't know where it's going to go. But instead of Repressing us, you know, uh, oppressing us, uh, ruling us where we can choose not to be ruled. A new tactic has been employed where now our choices get made for us and we're convinced that it was our choice. Hmm. The freedom of choice is not the freedom of choice. Think about the way commercials work. You think you wanted that toothpaste? Or did you just get that thought put in your head mm-hmm. that you chose that toothpaste? You think you like this politician? Or did you just get convinced that you like this politician?
1: <laughs> the lesser of two evils.
0: The lesser of two evils. I mean, my God, what an insane statement over and over and over that people will actually over and over through the years say, well, I choose the lesser of two evils and say it as if it's completely sane same thing to say. <laughs> That's a thought that gets put in our heads. It gets cultivated. So that power of choice, it's a really interesting way that it's getting gotten sidetracked, um, gotten co-opted, hijacked from us.
1: Well, and even like you were saying, the, the choices back in the time of Siddhartha G- Gautama, how many people can actually be a renunciate today? I mean, they put you right into that program of getting a job and helping you with your resume. I mean, you know, if you were to be a beggar going around with an empty bowl, an alms bowl, um, somebody would you know usher you into the church or into the uh, whatever welfare center for the the town or city and get you signed up, get you an intake, you know, get you all, all your paperwork done and make sure that you're on your way to uh, getting back in the system. Can't have outliers. If
0: you ask how many people could be a renunciant. I would say everybody. Well, I mean, I wonder if you're getting trapped in a certain well, that's uh, what
1: I'm saying. Picture
0: of the what choices, it would look like.
1: The choices, um, that people believe they have. In other words, we have that choice, but if you ask people or if you watch how people are maybe trying to escape this society, you often find that people can't do it. I mean, we haven't done it.
0: Now, when you say can't do it, do you believe it's possible? Or just that, or are you suggesting that maybe we're on a wrong path somehow, that we're not doing something or that it is impossible?
1: I think that the propaganda has changed our perspective on what our choices are.
0: Yeah, that's kind of, now that you say it like that, that's another really interesting uh, metaphor. I always get metaphor confused with analogy. In the Buddhist story is... That's sort of what was happening to him. The way you look, you, you might look at it, King Sudhudana was sort of propagandizing Siddhartha. He didn't want him to know he had a choice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and that was the powerful thing of the fourth sight. Is suddenly, you know, Siddhartha is awake to, I've seen the first three sights. These things that are hidden from me are not what they seem because wealth, hoarding things, protecting things that can't be protected, clutching things that are slipping through my fingers, it doesn't make sense anymore. How do I escape this madness? And the fourth sight is all about, oh, here's a choice that I never knew I had. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's kind of similar just with a more modern flavor of the situation we're in. Is that... Uh, jiving with what you're yeah, getting kind at of,
1: kind of I mean just thinking about how you were saying the the great propagandists of our time but I think especially now it's happening that our choices even though they seem limitless when you go into a grocery store but the way that we live the way that we are interacting in this life um, with our life experiences I think it's like it's the the I don't know, the circles getting smaller and smaller or the uh, the number of choices or the types of choices are, are kind of getting taken away. But they're not really getting taken away. It's the way that the propaganda is that is kind of, I don't know, hiding things or pushing things out of our view.
0: So you're still saying there. like the modern propaganda is perhaps making us believe that we need things we don't? Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely, yeah, I, I, I find that indisputable. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're taught we're, we need all kinds of crap from, you know, the, the brand new car to the updated laptop. To, to running water. Yeah, I mean, that's consumerism 101 is marketing is to convince people they need things they never needed before. Um, yeah, definitely. And I was also thinking about the times when we serve as being the sites for other people. Um, You know, we, we always hear that story, and I told that story from Siddhartha's viewpoint. But what about being the sick person? What about being the old person? We don't know anything about these people in the story. And the power of that we all serve as these sites for other people. When you're an old person, you serve as a reminder of an aspect of life that it's easy for young people to avoid and miss. And your death, you know, your death is going to be a big wake-up call. Like, you know, your dad just died recently, so all the the thoughts, the reflections that that spurred on, and, you know, the death I've been around, I mean, um, it's really interesting to, I don't know, just get on the other side of that mirror, you know, to realize, like, there's an opportunity for us to see like it, Buddha didn't wait until he got a disease until he got old. That's one of the cool things about the Buddha that like really blows you away in the story of what in a fucking intelligent person he is, mm-hmm. that he could see it and like then applied it to himself before it, he got there mm-hmm. and realize, oh shit, my time is limited. I better move. And, um, you know, to just recognize like, as we are trying to learn the stuff ourselves as we're getting older as we're going through our diseases as death is looming over us um that we serve the same thing you know when you get sick that's another gift it gives us when you get old when you die it's another gift that comes through us that we're giving to the world to remind anybody who's watching anybody who's listening anybody who has the eyes to see of what they really are. And I think that's something we're terrified to death of Mm -hmm. is facing what we really are. And it's so weird because what we really are is limitless. It's beautiful. What kind of fucking weird shit has happened to us that we're terrified of the best thing that could ever happen to us? Mm -hmm. You know, this whole ego thing is a, is a trip. I mean, it really is. And so now, you know, to finish this part of the Buddha's story, he's seen these four sights. He comes back to the kingdom. He's deeply troubled. And uh, by one telling of the story, there's a big party that night, you know, and what's really featured at this party is the women, you know, just women everywhere. And he's not really into it. He's like just reeling from all these realizations, these these piercing insights into life and what he's been taught about life. And it's all lies. It's all lies. It doesn't make sense. It's not satisfying. He can't be protected. He can't, there's nothing to protect. It's all, it's all going in places. He doesn't understand and nobody can explain to him what this is. Back then, 2,500 years ago, nobody could tell him what death was any more than anybody can tell you. And, you know, he's sitting there and the party's going on without him and he falls asleep. And he wakes up later and everybody's asleep. And it's jarring to him, the difference when he looks at all these women that are now asleep everywhere, that they look so different than when they were partying and dancing and celebrating. The illusion is gone. You know, there's drool in the corner of their mouths. Some of them are snoring. Um, Now he can't go back to seeing the illusion anymore. He sees something deeper, like all that... uh, you know, and again, this is kind of where Osho might get kind of critical, like, oh, you're letting too much go of Zorba, the Greek. Yeah. But for Buddha, it's like, I've got this this short life and I want to put everything I've got into getting free of these things that can't last, that are sand slipping through my fingers. What What lasts? What remains? That's what I need to tap into. That's what I need to understand. That's what I need. And so it's said that he goes and um, sees his wife, and he's just had a son. She's just given birth. And, uh, you know, it's said in the story that he um, doesn't go and touch his wife or his son because it's so painful for him to leave them that he realizes if he gets too close, he's not going to be able to do it. He's got to turn away. And he's already named his son, uh, you know, a lot of people find this funny, Rahula, which means tether. You know, it's already like, oh shit, like how am I going to turn away from this, like family life? You know, how can I have both of these things? And he realizes he can't. He's just got to go. And this is the great going forth. So it's the whole kingdom's asleep. Um, Buddha, he, <coughs> his, with his servant Channa, he gets his favorite horse, um, Kantaka, and they ride out of the kingdom and he goes forth and he starts his path that leads him to become the Buddha. And, uh, You know, beautifully, everybody is asleep, except for the Buddha and the person with the Buddha, you know, they alone are awake. And that sets the tone for the rest of the Buddha's story. And these same sites, all these sites, these four sites are still with us 2,500 years later. Think about how much the world has changed in 2,500 years all the things we've learned in history almost took place after that, including Jesus 500 years later, Uh, Christianity, all that 500 years after the Buddha. We're talking about a long time ago. Think about, you know, 500 years before Jesus might not seem like that big of a deal when you're thinking that far back, but think about the world 500 years before this, how different that was. Mm -hmm. So, These same foresights are with us at least as strong. Disease, Jesus Christ, we're in a fucking pandemic. (laughs) Aging, death, renunciants, people trying to escape, people trying to find some alternative and get out of this are still with us. But I would say if there's one thing that's different, it's that our culture resists them even more. Why? What is this telling us about where we're at? What does this reflect back to us? You know, and why do I say even more? Because now, you know, people just kind of accepted the powerlessness of disease. They had some light medicines, but they certainly weren't infecting mice with cancer. Mm -hmm. You might say they couldn't, they didn't have the technology. But there were a lot of decisions that led to that. We didn't just get here by accident. We fought disease more and more and more, even though the more we fought disease, the more other diseases would be introduced through that path that path of science, of technology, of this kind of lifestyle. Death. Back in Buddhist time, you would see dead bodies, you know? They'd be cremated, burned, Uh, funeral pyres. Now it's completely hidden from us. My God, we have makeup artists to make bodies appear alive. And all these weird ways we talk about bodies as if they're asleep, you know? um, Cremation. We've got the most bizarre death rituals, (laughs) I think maybe in the history of humanity. I mean, it's right up there with the mummification of the in the pyramids. It's like, put them in a concrete vault with a, a headstone to preserve their name for people who never met them, full of embalming fluid and makeup. Why? <laughs> All of this to avoid death, mm-hmm. manically to avoid death. Yeah. And even, the, you know, the propaganda, the movies that were shown, it makes death look really exciting and everything, you know, when you get around real death, like so much, that is real compared to the Hollywood version. It don't look like it does in the movies. And aging. Jesus Christ. People just knew you have to get old, you know, back then. Now people fight it. we got plastic surgery. We've got skin creams. We've got Facebook memes that indicate that if you are getting old in a way that hurts, it's your fault. You did something wrong. It's not supposed to happen. If you'd have just taken the right damn herbs and done yoga every day like you said you would, then being old would just be ethereal, and you'd be skipping around when you're 80.
1: And it sounds stupid, but I mean, I slip into that.
0: Oh, we all do. Yeah. I mean, we're not free of this. We all get infected by this. At best, sometimes we can step aside and look at it critically. But yeah, I mean, so... I don't know. This is my like my final thought for this episode. So, Teresa, if there's anything else you want to uh, reflect on on this episode, but specifically, I would ask you, what do you think it says about us that these four sites, supposedly things that we don't like, we don't like aging, we don't like death, we don't like disease, and we don't like renunciation. Um, why? What does it say that we're resisting them more? For instance the renunciation I didn't get into much, but uh, you know, anybody who drops out, we kinda have found a way to sort of ridicule them and channel them, get them addicted to things, make them turn them into bums. Mm. You know, a lot of these people that became bums, there might have been an impulse in them that they just didn't want to go with the flow. That in another culture could have been turned into a spiritual seeker, a right. renunciant. Yeah. But instead it got rechanneled into numbing. I just fucking don't want to deal with this shit, let me escape in another way. Yeah. And we can laugh at them. We can give them money, you know, we can yeah. Yeah. Shuffle them off.
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Um you talked earlier about how fear can be used to manipulate. And I think a lot of, you know, those aversions to death and and growing old and being sick and and not having things and stuff. Those aversions um, are, they have been masterfully uh, packaged to make you fearful of all those things. And if you fear it, then of course you're going to, you know, not like it. You're going to turn away from it. You don't want to look at those things. And like that note that was in my, uh, my notebook from so many years ago, greet those aversions look at them um like don juan said you know turn to your death your your greatest advisor
0: so that's really all i've got yeah yeah i don't know what it means either i think you know more and more i'm reminded that that is the most honest thing you know i told you i was going to tell you a bunch of lies the most honest thing i can say is i don't know and that is also i think one of the most powerful things i think socrates said something to that effect too um, you know, the, the most, the wisest thing a person can say is, I don't know. <clears throat> so yeah, hopefully through all these lies, through all this, uh, you know, the sucking of your life force for almost two hours, you know, that we have, uh, spurred some thoughts, you know, some reflections and, uh, I don't know, shocked or entertained, mm-hmm. you know? So here is our listener right in. And how would you say this name?
1: Hmm. I would probably say it in a wrong way. Well, I
0: always <laughs> say it in a wrong way.
1: Ciar- uh All right,
0: sorry, I'm right. going to say it in the way I thought because I think I might be right on more closer to right. Chiron? Chiron? Maybe. But Chiron is from Dublin, Ireland.
1: Oh, now when you say it in the Irish accent. Chiron! Yeah, sure.
0: All right. And Chiron from Dublin, Ireland writes. Thanks, Gumby Gumby, Teresa, for speaking freely. Oh, I cannot do an Irish accent. Teresa, will you do this? No, I
1: can't, but just read it.
0: Oh, damn it. (laughs) Thanks, Gumby Teresa, for speaking freely, uninhibitedly, and inspirationally. And finally, love this Hobo Zen podcast. Zen, so potent and direct pointing. Blessings. And that was in uh, response to our Hobo Zen episode. And again, this is a follow-up. Hobo Zen. And the Four Passing (laughs) Sights. So thank you, Chiron. I'm glad you enjoyed uh, that episode. And um, yeah, Um, you know, when I get tired of hearing myself, and, you know, I get tired of hearing myself a lot, um, that's kind of what I go back to is these reflections, these like uh, more Buddhist-style reflections, because, you know, I just get kind of fed up with how impotent all these other thoughts are. They just upset us, but they don't seem to lead us anywhere. In circles. Yeah, in circles. You know, we just keep getting mad, but nothing gets fixed. I mean, if we were getting mad and things were getting fixed, I might be a little more uh, (laughs) supportive of it. But it seems like a lot of people are just getting really fucking pissed off and uh, it's not leading them to freedom. So that, that, that gets me questioning. What's the point? What is the point? Um, If you have any questions or comments, you can visit our website at www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in (laughs) bodhisattva.com. And we have a Facebook page in which uh, mainly I post a lot of uh, um, controversial and...
1: Sometimes funny stuff.
0: Sometimes funny memes. Um, yeah, and I'm also trying to turn people on to other podcasts as well. If you are a podcast listener, you know somebody who likes to listen to podcasts. I appreciate listening to us, but uh, we get a lot of our information from other podcasts, and I would hate to be stealing people that could be listening to, for instance, um, Disaffected with Josh Slocum. Um, what are some other ones? Ground Shot? No, well. <laughs>
1: Ground shots sometimes is good.
0: The propaganda report, a lot of interesting stuff there. Government secrets. It's a little left leaning for me, but it's got a lot of uh, interesting stuff.
1: And that other one that we just started listening.
0: Yeah, to, I was trying to remember. Uh, uh,
1: unsafe space.
0: Unsafe space. That's yeah. A yeah.
1: Little, uh, I don't know what that is. That's leaning differently
0: as well. Yeah, it's kind of right leaning. Yeah. But anyway, a lot of these. Uh, oh, by the way, unsafe space. They have the best freaking outro. (laughs) So if you listen just to hear what they play at the end, it's worth it for one episode. It's true. It's awesome. So um, please contact us. We have a donate button on our website. Um, If you have benefited at all from our um, podcast episode, we haven't gotten a donation in quite some time. And we would uh, be very happy to receive one um, please give us a review. Just write us a few sentences. We've gotten just a couple and we appreciate them very much, but, uh, there's a lot of people listening and, you know, it's so good to get a little bit of feedback, whether it's a message or specifically a review. We love reviews because other people can read them. It's really a nice thing to do. Give us some stars, you know, preferably five. And we got a YouTube channel. A lot of information there to help you get outside and uh, hopefully start escaping society. And uh, is there anything else, Teresa? Mm,
1: Try sitting down for a minute.
0: Yeah. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. (laughs) No, no, no. I said that wrong. Don't shit the fuck up. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. Yeah. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.